morning. Most of y'all know who I am. Um, so I'm 29, and I've been a youth leader for nine of those years. So I've been around this group and this leadership team for quite a while now. Um, I normally am in the booth with Caleb and, and Robert, and Jake's back there now, and we, um, we do need help, but it's an awful lot of fun. Just shameless plug about that. Um, I'm a nurse at Scott & White, and um, I have been married to Evan for about three years now. I know, this is like the best decision that I could have ever made, ever. Um, but my life story today is way, way before that. I know, ew. It's a, this is an awe moment. Clean it up. Thank you. This is me when I was young. I know, I was a cute kid. But um, I was born in northeast Texas in a town called Greenville. And I soon moved to Lone Oak, Texas, which looks like this. Yeah, so if you don't know where that is, that's okay. Nobody else does either. Um, my original graduating class had around 80 people in it. To some of y'all, that's massive. And to some of y'all, that's like, that's like one class for me. Um, and the 80-person graduating class was the public school. Okay, it wasn't like a private charter or anything. That's just how big the, the surrounding area was. Um, Right next to my school, there was a rodeo church, and they legit did rodeo events at the church. Um, football was king. Um, if, is Kenzie here today? I don't see her, but um, this is where I rode a lawnmower, a John Deere, across the football field to get to class on time. And in context, it's not that weird. Um, our, only our only firefighters were volunteer, and they were my eighth grade science teacher and a track and field coach. Yeah. So sometimes, legitimately, somebody's field was on fire and class was canceled. That was where I grew up. Okay, so this is, these are my parents, Steve and Karen. Um, I grew up in the best possible family. Dad led our nuclear family in spiritual matters. His love for God has always been evident. He is an intense person and has a strong sense of justice, and he loves making mom laugh. Um, Karen was a teacher for over 30 years, and she retired and went to nursing school. That's the kind of person that she is, and that's where I think I get a little bit of my grit from. And my brother, Ethan, is 26 now. Here, he was about 15. Um, he's wicked smart. He goes to school in Austin, and he lives in Austin, but he's moving to Portland this year. So, again, growing up in the best possible circumstances, I was born into the church. I was baptized at age five. Okay. Do you really think I knew what I was doing to accept Christ at age five? I, I didn't. Some, I don't know. There may be people out there who, who got it, but I essentially was accepting of the gospel because it's what I'd heard my entire life, and it's what I knew would please my parents. Does that make sense? So I knew about Christ, and I knew intellectually that he loved me and that he died to save me from my sins. But between the ages of 5 and 16, I was relying on the borrowed faith of my parents. And I'm not special. Many children raised in Christian homes do the same thing. 
Internally, though, a verse that described my life up through early childhood is Proverbs 26:12, which says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So let me be clear, I've never been a cool kid my entire life. I've never wanted to be, but I found a niche as the smart one. In fact, I was convinced in that tiny town of Lone Oak that I was the smartest person in the whole world. Um, and I tended to be the kind of intense person who would pin people to the mat during an argument and try to win it through whatever means. And I generally sought to display intellectual prowess even when it really wasn't necessary. I was insufferable, okay? Um, I had to be the best. I was valedictorian in that class. I was first chair flute and on my way to being just the star of that class. And I was unapologetically self-obsessed. I knew about Christ, but my life was not affected by him. And the word I would use to describe my life before Christ is the word immature. I didn't need him. I would figure out my own life using my own personal brilliance. And there was never a problem I couldn't solve, nothing I couldn't outthink or outwork. I knew all the technically correct answers to any Bible study question, but my faith was immature. My God was my own intelligence and capability and my community status. I was worshiping myself. I was more than happy to continue to do that, but God, in his grace, made sure I didn't miss out on him. So between the ages of 11 and 16, I was attending a church in Greenville, and my father was ordained as a minister there and served as an elder. I don't know if this is the message the pastoral staff of that church intended, but this is what I received as the primary lesson about God between the ages of about 14 and 16. It's, sum, it's summed up in Romans 3. And it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves and their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a downer. So I started to think maybe I wasn't all that. The message that I received was, you're a horrible being whom God is consistently angry at because of your sin. Because he's loving, he will not send you to hell, but you better shape up. He has covered you for your sins up until this point, but he requires perfection, so be perfect. I mean, among other people, I considered myself pretty excellent in my own right, but in front of God, that's a completely different standard. My idea of God grew into this cold boss who lives in heaven, and every time I fell short, I imagined him with a disappointed face saying, fine, I'll forgive you again for sinning, but only because I'm righteous and you need me. I don't love you, and I see you as a nuisance instead of a delight. The concept of grace and the scriptural fact that God delights in his children had no place in my theology. I didn't understand that God could love me. I was worthless to him and a screw-up, and I lived like that for a few years. It was utterly miserable, and internally, while outwardly I was the best and I had to keep up this front, it bore a sort of internal shame that I carried around for years. 
So that was the end of my internal understanding that I was all that. However, God wasn't finished with me yet. So the end of my external reputation is still kind of bitter, I'm not going to lie. Um, this is not a story about church abuse, although that was involved in how God pulled me out of my, of my sin, out of my denial. So when I was about 14, my dad was an elder. My mom became the target of the people who led the church I was attending, which was brought about by a disagreement with another elder's wife. It's not really important now. The elder board, though, kept calling her into confidential meetings with the elders without my dad's knowledge or invitation. They called her bitter and told her that she wasn't really saved, essentially because she wouldn't do what they wanted. They essentially demanded that my mom perform penance by apologizing for words she didn't speak and actions she didn't take. And this went on for a year and a half. After a very short time, my dad resigned as an elder, but the abuse didn't stop. During this time, our family's relationship with the church was strained at best, and the youth group I was involved in began to subtly retract from my brother and me. After two years, the board of elders, minus my dad at that point, had called the entire church congregation together one weeknight without our invitation and instructed the congregation not to associate socially with any of the members of my family. And if they refused to those terms, they would also be excommunicated. They used Matthew 18 to back that up. They used it inappropriately. And this is not, by any means, the proper, loving, gospel-focused application of the prescription for church discipline found in that passage. Instantaneously, my church community hated me. I had no church friends. I was not welcome to any church function. And my spiritual life was upended at age 16, to the point we had to leave town. A few months after being excommunicated, my parents decided that we shouldn't stay in that town anymore, and I don't blame them. So we moved to Waco, but the move was traumatic. Some of what I thought was important, I lost. I lost my community, and I lost my status as the smart one. I went from attending a school with 80 people in one class to a school with 500, 600 people in one class. It was a little bit of a shock. I couldn't outthink, outwork, or outrun the situation I found myself in. I remember coming home one day to my dad's apartment and I'm in tears because something that was important to me was the fact that I was good at music. I, I was in the band, but my first day there, I looked at the sheet music and there were notes I'd never seen before. And how was I even going to keep up with these people? How was I going to keep my status and my self-importance? And I was so angry at God for letting his people be responsible for my family's suffering and more importantly for my suffering. How could God be so cold to me? I knew deep down that none of my achievements or good works would ever save me. I had already come to that point where I couldn't please God. But I didn't understand. Although I thought that God was picking me apart because of my imperfections, my failures, no matter how slight or great, were catching up with me. A great deal of internal directionless shame continued to grow in me in that time. I wasn't struggling with any sin in particular. I was just ashamed of myself constantly because I lacked grace. And I bought the narrative 
that I had created, that God was cruel, and an exacting master that I could never please. And Jesus was a technicality. So here's where we are now. I'm in Waco. I have no friends. God secretly hates the fact that he must obligatorily keep saving me. My social status, which was the God I really cared about at the time, had to be rebuilt with only two years left in high school, five times the size of my first one. So all through this, my family remained unchurched for the better part of a decade, and I don't really blame them. My parents were severely burned, um, but it did slow down my coming back. The second word I would use to describe my life during the social and spiritual upheaval would be isolation. So there are two narratives going on here. The first is necessarily discovering humility. I had to submit to the circumstances of my life, which God allowed to come about, so that I wouldn't think so highly of myself. There's a second narrative here, which is profound shame. And the years between 16 and 18 were very lonely, and again, isolated. I had some superficial friendships, but I didn't really make any that would last. Some of you are feeling some of that right now. Um, sometimes what happens at the end of high school is that friend groups kind of disperse or they kind of retract or pull apart as students prepare to leave home. By the time I was introduced to this new social situation, I was already way behind socially the rest of the people who were in my class. And I tried everything. I tried being nice. I tried being mean. I tried being smart, being less smart, dressing like people that I liked hanging out with, doing everything I could to find a new social niche. None of it worked. My peer group could smell the desperation on me as I tried to fit in. And it didn't work. Time and time again, it kept failing. But my small g god, the god of my own creation, was failing me. And there's an old dead guy that I like named Blaise Pascal, who is commonly accredited with this quote, there is a God-shaped hole in every man. But that's not what he said. He said a lot more than that, actually. He said this, man without faith can know neither true good nor justice. All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However, different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. Yet for very many years, no one without faith has ever reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming. A test which has gone on so long without pause or change really ought to convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good by our own efforts. But example teaches us very little. So while the present never satisfies us, experience deceives us and leads us on from one misfortune to another until death comes as the ultimate and eternal climax. Another bummer. This reflected in my, uh, in my spirit. I reached a point where I found no value in my life. I was not unique. I was not talented. I was not particularly wanted by my peer group. And at least in my head, God still secretly hated me no matter what I did. So that, that season of life was very ecclesiastical. And Ecclesiastes is a book, y'all probably know this, written by the preacher, which we presume was King Solomon, David's grandson. So Solomon started his reign as a king very well. He was the wealthiest, most respected, greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament. But for all of his wisdom, Solomon sought to fulfillment in many things besides an honest relationship with his God. 
Ecclesiastes talks about how Solomon found no value in any of it. He called them meaningless or vanity over and over. Nothing fulfilled him, nothing but God and living simply in his service. So I was sort of friends with a few people who still went to church and for a long while I refused to participate because I was still angry and still ashamed, even though those friends kept inviting me to, to participate. That's a side note for y'all who keep inviting your friends who don't show up to church. Don't give up. Eventually, I did go. I have no explanation except that God wanted me to go, and I did. I didn't really want to go with them, but I wanted friends. But over the course of a few months in my first semester of my senior year of high school, I returned to church. I still didn't understand grace and could never stretch as far as to believe that God loved me in any meaningful way. I went because I wanted those friends, and I saw church as a necessary evil toward those ends. So I attended a youth retreat during winter break called Alpha Chi, which stands for Christ First, and I heard a message that I'd never understood before. I don't remember the name of the guest speaker that they had brought in to teach the high schoolers, um, and to, that may not be as important. It wasn't his words. It was what God spoke to me through them. So these are the scriptures that God spoke through to reach me. Matthew 11, 18 through 20, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, John 10, 10, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. All of these follow a pattern. And that is, they describe a God who loves deeply and perfectly. On the last night of the retreat, I accepted Christ again for real this time. It was a night of tears and relief and rest and grace. God was delighted to speak to me, to save me, and to teach me how to be like his son. And after he spoke to me, I also realized that I really needed to repent from my addiction to myself. Christ gave me a new identity, which is my final word. So... Identity in Christian circles is kind of a buzzword. So I wanted to use the, the words of my, one of my favorite old dead guys to kind of flesh it out a little bit. Blaise Pascal says this. He says, man tries in vain to fill the void with everything around him, seeking in these things, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object in other words, by God himself. God alone is man's true good. So as I grew in my faith, I learned a little later in life that you need to balance both ideas. We need to understand both our depravity and God's delight to understand our identity in Christ. So idea number one is depravity. Romans 3 says man's heart is evil and cannot be trusted. In Ecclesiastes, we learn that all is vanity apart from God. In Galatians 3, we learn about what it looks like when, when we try to achieve holiness outside of the grace of God. There's a no, another one I wanted to add, which is Jeremiah 17, 9, which says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it is desperately sick, and who can understand it? Y'all have heard that one before, I'm sure. Um, the second idea is delight. God's and ours. God loves his children and desires to give them rest in himself and to delight in them. And that's in Matthew 
11. It's also in Psalm 149. God sent his son Jesus to allow us to live by faith in God, relying on his grace and not on our own striving. That's Galatians 2. John 10.10 is the end of it says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we can have that life now in Christ, not later, but now. Psalm 16 talks about how we can delight in God and how we can delight in each other as his people. All of this is summed up in an excellent quote by Tim Keller, and he says, you are more wicked than, have, than ever dared believe, and yet you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope. So why does this matter? Two things. First, I had, to, I had to realize that my identity in myself and all my achievements was insufficient, and it was transient. I'm not a high schooler anymore. I don't play flute. I haven't done so in years. I'm a nurse now. I'm a wife now. Um, your identity in this world and temporal things will change, but your Christ-given identity alone is permanent, and your Christ-given identity alone will fill the void, as described by Blaise Pascal. Only God is sufficient for you. I have made it my mission that if you remember nothing else about today in this talk, that you remember these points, that you are so valued by God that he gave you a new name and a new identity, and that he delights in you, so you should and can delight in him. You will struggle with this balance between depravity and delight, for many years, likely. I'm still working through it. I'm not done yet. God isn't done with me. But no matter what circumstance you're in, he's not going to leave you, and he's going to find his delight in the fact that you're his child through Jesus Christ. God has made me new. He's allowed me the privilege of delighting in himself, and over time, he has refined me. I want to close with this. Therefore, this is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Praise God. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to a discussion, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the honor that it is to know you and to serve you in a way that isn't cold, in a way that isn't distant, in a way that allows us to know that you love us desperately and that for all of our failures, we can rely on Christ and his finished work. I pray that we would each take from this talk what we need to know about you and that we would go forward into our next week uh, with new eyes to see the world around us and to see ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.